Hubhopper Originals. To start your podcast for free, log on to studio.hubhopper.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to Indie Jeets. We have a blockbuster episode coming up for you today where we explore the mysteries of the human mind and the depths of human experience. Today we have the privilege of delving into the realms of neuroscience, consciousness and the enigmatic nature of our own awareness. Our exclusive and special guest is a true polymath, a freelance writer, lecturer and broadcaster who has made significant contributions to our understanding of the mind. As a visiting professor at the esteemed University of Plymouth, she brings a wealth of knowledge and insight to the forefront of our discussion today. Having earned her degree in psychology and physiology from Oxford University in 1973, she embarked on a remarkable journey of exploration. Her pursuit of understanding the human mind led her to obtain a PhD in parapsychology from the University of Surrey. It was her curiosity and thirst for truth that redirected her focus toward captivating areas of study such as memes, evolutionary theory, consciousness and meditation. Her profound insights have captured the attention of diverse audiences and she shares her wisdom through her writings for renowned magazines and newspapers, her thought-provoking blog for the Guardian newspaper and her captivating presence as a frequent contributor and presenter on radio and television. With over 60 academic articles, about 50 book contributions, numerous book reviews and a collection of captivating books to her name she has firmly established herself as a leading authority in her field where her work transcends boundaries and challenges conventional thinking pushing the frontiers of our understanding today we dive into the depths of neuroscience exploring its intricate relationship with consciousness itself and we venture into the uncharted territories of out of body experiences near death experiences and the very nature of our subjective reality brace yourselves for a mind bending conversation that will challenge your assumptions so without any further delay let us embark on this extraordinary intellectual journey with the brilliant dr sue blackmore so sue if that is what i can call you it's an absolute pleasure to have you here speaking to us in india on indian genes we've been trying to get you on for a long time now it's been delayed from my end so i would officially want to apologize for that but thank you so much for making time to talk to us you're very welcome i'm glad to be able to talk to lots of people in india that's a treat for me i've only been to india oh three times i think i hope i'll go again one day and when was the last time that that you were in india it was Oh it must be about 2015 or 16 and I was giving lectures in various cities and my husband came and we traveled everywhere on the train to avoid not flying um and we had wonderful train trips right across India uh it was it was wonderful and met lots of interesting people Brilliant I think a lot of them would be here listening to you once we put this out and just to set this this discussion on to track to we do know that you are involved in uh, psychology we do know that your 
books. I would say books because most of them are very popular and I think a lot of us have read some of them starting from the means to uh, your journey. So I just want to start with asking you, if somebody asks you, uh, you, what do you do? How do you like to describe what you do and, and what you really enjoy doing before we get to the specifics of it? <laughs> That's a difficult question because I'm 71, so a lot of people tell me, you should be retired, you should just be doing your garden and enjoying this. We live near the sea, enjoying going by on the beach and, you know. But I love working. Um, so if people ask me, I'd say, well, I'm a psychologist, but I'm not that sort of psychologist. I don't know anything about people and mental illness. And, you know, it's very difficult if you say you're a psychologist because people think you're going to analyze them or something. So I say, no, no, nothing like that. I'm just interested in the brain and consciousness and neuroscience and the problem of dualism and how we're conscious at all and what it all means, the meaning of life. Um, and that's, I suppose, what I tell people. But before, well, 2018, I did a round-the-world lecturing tour in many countries and completely exhausted myself and got chronic fatigue had it before but it's just you're just constantly tired and you have to sleep a lot and i've recovered more or less from that now but in the meantime came covid and i really decided that i don't want to spend my life traveling it's been i've been to wonderful places but actually i live in a marvelous part of england in the countryside by a little river and i love doing the gardening and we have chickens and sheep and um i i love living in the country and that that's a lot of what I do is just growing the vegetables and whatever. I guess the closer you get to, like you said in your book, who you really are, and that's the only person you know and you know really well, and the best way to do that is to spend that kind of quality time. But this is just my thought and the way I see it, because uh, I have to remind you, I'm not an expert here, so these are all non-expert observations or questions that you are going to get. But probably 30 or 40 years ago, it was easier because we did not have a perfect map of the brain. We could not see the brain in action on a screen telling us exactly which part of the brain does what. What we've assumed may not have been true all along. Has it taken us closer to understanding consciousness or has it made us step back and say, uh, maybe we need to think again? Uh, both, both. That's a very, very interesting question um, because I have often thought that, um, you say 30 or 40 years ago, well, then the mystery of consciousness was was there. It's all it's always been there. The mind body problem, mind brain um, problem, has been around in various guises for thousands of years. And then in 1994, Dave Chalmers coined the phrase "the hard problem of consciousness." And even then, we couldn't see very much um, of what was happening in in a living brain. Um, and you might think that with all the things we know now. We, we would be closer to understanding consciousness. In, in a sense, we are in the sense that we know an awful lot more about what the brain is doing, where and when. And for example, what happens with psychedelic drugs or what happens during sleep and dreaming, because um, we can see those, those things happening. But in a way, it just sharpens up the hard problem. It makes it even harder because the more you know about, well, these neurons are doing this and this, this network here is doing this, and, but why is it like something to be me? Why is there something, why is there a world for me that is private to me? Why am I having experiences 
that I cannot share with anybody else because they're my private, it's my private consciousness. That problem is even worse, I would say, even though I get lots of emails. I got one this morning from people who think they've solved the problem and that, you know, I, I read what they have to say and no, you haven't even grasped what the problem is <laughs> and how deep yeah. the problem is. Um, you know, it's no good to say, oh, well, consciousness is made in the cerebrospinal fluid or, or consciousness emerges from the process of something or other. How can subjective experience, what it's like to be me, emerge from some physical thing? That's what we don't understand. And the more neuroscience, the better the neuroscience gets, the more it sharpens up that question. Um, so I think it's got harder even though we know a lot more that probably in the end will help us. Right. And do you think, as you just said, because of the subjectivity and all of us have our own subjectivity, so all of us can be considered to be experts. So in, the, in, in this specific field, when we speak about consciousness, everybody has, as a dog in the game, as this has a bone there, because compared to, for example, when we were, we were decoding the DNA or if somebody is talking about the inner workings of the heart. We tend to say, okay, these are the experts and we will go with what they say. But now I assume I have a subjectivity. I have my own consciousness. So that means I also know what is the meaning of all this and where this all comes from. So that tends to create a little bit more ambiguity and adds to the confusion. Oh, totally, totally adds to the confusion because you say that they, that, that people are experts on their own experience. But the truth is, they are not. And this is one of the things that really interests me in the study of consciousness. I'm particularly fond of, though many people are not, of Dan Dennett's approach, uh, starting with his book, Consciousness Explained in 1991, but on for ever since a lot of his work, other people's work too, which undermines what we actually think about our own minds. So it seems to be that most people, and this applies to English people and Indian people and you know all sorts of people in different cultures, the tendency is from a young age to be a dualist. That is, you, are, you become convinced that the mind is something separate from the body. You become sure that I am inside my, it feels as though I am inside my head looking out through the eyes. I am in control of this body. I am having a stream of conscious experiences all the time when I'm awake. And at any time during the waking day, I am conscious of this and not that, or I'm conscious of these things going on. Now, all of these things might seem perfectly um, acceptable, but all of them are not true. Oh, you might also assume that if you look at something, you're going to see it. And if you see something, um, uh, you, you will... Um, you know, you, that if you, if you look at something, you must see it, or that you can't um, look at things and not see them. Um, and th these things are not true. I, in, in lectures, I often do demonstrations of that, of that kind of thing. Um, if, if you're listening and you have never watched a video called, no, I better not tell you what it's called. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. <laughs> you know the one where... Um, a whole lot of American uh, students are throwing uh, uh, balls around to each other. There's a black team and a white team. Uh, perhaps you can put it, uh, but you could put a link to that. Um, this is the kind of thing that just indicates how we don't understand how our own visual system works. But going more closely to consciousness, if we imagine ourselves as a conscious being inside in charge of our body, we are completely wrong. 
And that's really the heart of the problem of consciousness. It relates to self and it relates to free will and the idea that we're able to control, you know, that I inside here am the one who has free will and has the conscious experiences. And two ways of, of demolishing this particularly appeal to me. One is the way the neuroscience is beginning to see how we build up a sense of self. So we have a body schema. This is the kind of model of our own body, which all the time is very rapidly updated all the time. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to move around and I wouldn't be able to pick up this cup of tea and put it to my mouth accurately if the body schema were not working. That is then connected up with a whole lot of my memories, who I am, who I, what I think about myself. It's connected with control systems in the frontal lobes. It's con connected with uh, memory uh, in the temporal lobes. It's connected with big, um, mostly the fault mode network is very important in the sense of self. And there's a lot of research now um, understanding what's going on in the default mode network, which which is a big network with long range connections, long range connections in the brain. Um, and so neuroscience is getting an idea of how a model, a representation, a story about a self is built up by the brain. There is no self, there is no spirit, soul, entity in there. There's just a bunch of neurons, millions of them, um, uh, processing information and building up this idea, this false idea that I'm in there. Now, that's one way of getting at self. The other way, which I'm particularly interested in as well, is through meditation or really any any determined practice of inner exploration. Um, I have been practicing Zen meditation. I'm not a Buddhist, um, I, but I really appreciate the training. I've been training in Zen for more than 40 years. I've meditated every day for, I don't know, 35 years. Um, and meditation for me is about looking in to experience as it happens. And when you get good at calming the mind so that you can become, or that the mind can become clear and soft and gentle, it's amazing how you can observe. I'm struggling here because I have to say you, but there are observations um, of all sorts of things going on. And it's not at all obvious which are conscious and which are not or which I'm in control of or which not, whole things can, can really fall apart. And you begin to see that the self is a shifting phenomenon that comes and goes. Um, I, I like to ask people, are you conscious now? Well, can I ask you, mm. are you conscious? Now? Yes. Are, are, yes. Right. Now, almost without fail, if you ask yourself that question, the answer will be yes. But when you're not asking the question, what about that? I bet you just before I asked you that question, um, you were probably concentrating on what your next question is or trying to understand what I'm saying or something like that, but without a sense of being fully present. I don't know. We can't go back and find out. But a lot of practice in these directions will help you to understand that the self is not the way it feels to most people, a kind of inner powerful entity having conscious experiences. And this is really exciting progress to know. Yeah, very interesting. And and since you just brought up the question about are you conscious now? And and honestly, no, I was not thinking about whether I was conscious or not till you asked me. But then the fact that you asked me and I thought of it uh, makes me think that the physiology of, of any person is not always conscious of what they're doing. So, for example, I'm not even conscious about uh, the blood. Uh, I mean, my heart beats at the moment. But if you tell me, I will start now. So then everything we do should be connected to our physiology, depending on us as humans that's what i mean and 
if we put a spotlight on anyone, then that becomes active. I don't know whether that becomes conscious and conscious could, consciousness could be one of those aspects. But since we call it consciousness, it could be consciousness. It could be your, your heartbeat. It could be your, your, you moving your hand. The moment we focus on it, it then takes over. And I think consciousness works the same, but there is still the mystery that people like to talk about, right? Uh, yes, but it's interesting. You're, you're um, bringing up there the question of the relationship between attention and consciousness. There's an interesting new theory um, by Michael Graziano called the attention schema theory. And his theory is that consciousness is... Um, uh, a schema, a model, <laughs> like the body schema is a is a representation or model of the body. So the attention schema is a model of what we are currently attending to, and that may be, as you say, we attend to different things that we don't. Uh, oh, I was just scratching my face there, and I <laughs> I probably wouldn't have noticed if I hadn't been talking to you in this way. Oh yes, I've just my attention is coming to it, and that felt like I became conscious of that. Um, now, this is very interesting because we know quite a lot, well, a lot over more than 100 years of um, research on attention and probably 30 or 40 years of neuroscience of attention. But does this help us understand? Is attention the same as consciousness? My, my daughter and I have just completed the fourth edition of a big textbook on consciousness. I mean, a teaching book, you know, for students uh, is nice. the fourth edition now. Um, and we have a big chapter on attention and ask what is the relationship between attention and consciousness? And we have one section with all the theories that they're the same thing. Uh, another theory that says they're not connected at all. And other theories that say one leads to the other. Um, and there are so many different theories. And at the moment, there is no um, consensus about the right answer about the relationship between attention and consciousness. Right. And do you think, because earlier you had spoken about Dan Dennett, he also brought in intelligence when he said, whatever decision we make, uh, there, is, uh, there is still an intellect attached to it because you could have an options to make decisions, but at the end of the day, you don't really know you've not chosen any other decision other than what you've done. So that, it, though it looks like options, it could just be one path and the most intelligent path to take, while the others just, uh, I, I, I would say, just, just dissolve into nothingness because it never happened. I, I, I do find that those sort of thoughts are uh, really interesting. And I've, you know, I can remember even as a kid kind of thinking about that, you know, well, what if I had done this differently? And, and then, well, it's one of those great mysteries about the universe, isn't it? That something happens, that the way it happens is the way it happens. And you can do all you like saying, well, I should have done this, or I might have done that, or he shouldn't have done that, she should have done that. Um, and you'll never find out. As creatures evolved stuck here in this on this planet um as you say we have to make the best decisions that we think we can at the time um and we can and we can't know unless you take a, a multiple universes view and i know some people who do uh, it doesn't seem to help for me but the other thing i would like to say in response to what what you just asked is about um about decision making we tend to think that i the, this sort of conscious self inside is the one who makes the decisions. But the more you look at the neuroscience and the anatomy and the way, our, what kind of animal we are, the more it's obvious that decisions are made all over the place at every layer 
I mean, the brain is generally considered to be a more or less messy hierarchical system um, with predictive processing running from the highest levels down to the lowest levels and all sorts of things going on all over the place. Decisions being made. I mean, I've, I've just found myself waving my arm around as though you can see me and sort of <laughs> trying to explain things. Now, yeah. did I decide to wave my arm? No. There are programs in there in the brain partly um, uh, genetically controlled that we tend to use body uh, you know, movements in, in when we're speaking, um, partly cultural because of the kind of things. Um, so they'll be different, but, but we all will do these things without thinking, certainly without whatever it means to say consciously thinking, I'm going to wave my hand around now. And actually, I've probably been drinking this cup of tea because it's nearly empty now all the time we've been talking and I, I haven't been conscious of it at all. Um, so the, I think it's important to realize that the decisions are going on um, at multiple different levels of a very complex system that is a human being. And where do I come into it? This I that I feel that I am the conscious one. I'm the one who has free will. I decided, well, that is all a, a construct. That is an idea that we have built up of this self in there. Now, there are many spiritual traditions that would say, you need to let go of the self. Uh, there are some that would say you need to abolish it or whatever, but a lot who say that you need to get insight into the nature of self. Probably we touched on certain cultural uh, nuances that are picked up across the globe, let's say, where a particular culture has, has a particular learning of somebody else. And if we had a panpsychist who was listening to this, or Rupert Sheldrake would turn around and say, well, that's exactly what I'm talking about, because there is some connection, and this could be, uh, you're probably moving to the, to the left of the conversation, but then this just comes in exactly here because that's what he says, is there is a collective memory, and uh, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the experiment where the rats that were at one part of the world were trained to do certain things, and immediately uh, the other rats in Australia uh, ended up doing it uh, immediately. So that's not what you're talking about, right? No, it's not, but it's very interesting. I mean, immediately, did they? I mean, it's a long time since I looked at the details of that experiment. But I, I, I know Rupert Sheldrake very well. I was involved um, in the early experiment of his on his um, morphic resonance um, and his, you know, overthrowing of science. It's never led, led us anywhere. Um, if there really were evidence that... Um, uh, so he talks about form. So, you know, he, he would say... And he did say the reason that, um, you know, all oak trees are the shape they are is because all oak trees are kind of in connection with each other. Well, we know why they are the shape they are because of the, basically the algorithms run in the different um, genes of different trees will produce different behaviors in response to light and moisture and so on that produce the characteristic shapes of trees. And he used to talk about, you know, um, birds flying in formation um, well, all the maths has been done and we know why they fly in the formation they do. Different species make different shapes in the sky, but it, it, it's well understood. It, it's, I think Sheldrake's ideas, for me at least, um, just go nowhere. And what happens is the science, neuroscience, physics, maths, um, solve problems that he wanted to solve by these rather bizarre theories. I mean, this goes back to my... Um, decades in my early research um, on paranormal claims. You know, I started out um, when I was 19, 20, 
completely convinced of those sorts of ideas and that there was telepathy that we all, all could communicate if only we stopped being so educated and so i don't know distant from ourselves we, we would find that we're all telepathic and commun can communicate with each other and even see the future i believed all of this stuff until i did a lot of experiments lots and lots and lots of experiments and i as i said i did a little work with with rupert sheldrake and studied his experiments and i studied lots of other people's and i came to the conclusion that these things just don't happen um, but people want them to you see this is the thing because we have this natural tendency towards dualism we want myself to survive with this this self that we invent who lives in here and has all these powers you know we, we want to hang on to that and we protect it and we build it up throughout our lifetime and we make things important that I'm, what's important about me is this and that. And, you know, I want to be liked and I want to be important and I want to be powerful and we do all this. And, and in that way, um, we want there to be life after death. And so books that say, you know, here's a theory of mind beyond the brain, um, I know too much about this and I can't bear it, you know, these extended topics. Yeah, the ghost in the machine. Yes, yes. Arthur Kersler's originally um, made that phrase originally. Um, yes, the ghost inside the machine. That's what we uh, very easily imagine that we are. And all the religions, uh, well, at least the monotheistic religions, particularly not so much Hinduism um, or Buddhism, but to some extent they do, um, pander to people's desire for the self to exist as a continuing thing. I mean, the Buddha said, for example, um, the self is not continuous. It, there is no continuing entity in there. Yeah, there's a self, but it's not, it's not like you think it is. It's not something that's going to carry on. But then people love to, um, to think there's reincarnation or there's heaven or hell or whatever. All this comes, I think, from um, the way our brains are constructed to build a, a sense of self, to get on in life. But it's not true, and it can lead us very far astray. Right. And mentioning dualism, if what we are told, the reason why dualism got into the system or, or officially got into the system, people would immediately turn to Descartes and talk about his, he, he started the, the ghost in the machine, and you could say, or the dualistic uh, theories. But was it really him? Because that didn't happen, I mean, too long ago. But when you go back to older traditions, it was always there. So did he inserted into some form of uh, Western thought, let's put it that way, because it started coming up very strongly after him. Uh, yes, I think so. And I think that was because of science. I mean, at that time when Descartes was, was writing, um, was the beginning of the, of the Enlightenment and the beginnings of science and people beginning to be able to, for example, do anatomy, cutting open... Um, uh, bodies and finding out how they work. So the problem has been around for a long time. It, it, it's, it's there in all of the early religious traditions in, in various forms. Um, both Greek and Roman thinkers were in some ways or another thinking about it. But I think the reason that Descartes was so important is because he knew about nerves. He could see that if you, and there are pictures that were drawn at the time, you know, if you touch something hot and withdraw your hand, uh, he knew from the science of the day that there were nerves that went up from your hand all the way up the arm and into the brain. And then he said, well, then what happens? <laughs> you know, um, and he couldn't answer. He couldn't answer. So he said, um, well, there must be some something in the brain 
that allows the connection between uh, the whatever it is that comes along the nerves. And they thought there was a fluid or, you know, obviously didn't understand uh, the way we do now. Um, but whatever it was coming up the nerve, up the arm and going to the brain, all that can be seen physically. And then we have the experience of pain. So he said there must be two kinds of stuff, um, thinking stuff um, or material stuff. And that's known as Cartesian dualism, that particular sort of dualism. So I think that's why he became so important, because it was in that context of, of um, putting it together with, with the beginnings of, of um, a scientific understanding of anatomy. But the, argue, the philosophical ideas, of, as, you, as you correctly point out, have been around for a very long time. So uh, and you know, it's just a convenient handle to put on it, Cartesian dualism. But it, that's not the only kind of dualism. There are lots of other sorts of dualism um, that are not... That's that's called substance dualism. I'm not a philosopher, by the way, so I hope I'm getting these things right. But you know, that is substance dualism. But there's also um, uh, dual aspect um, uh, theories in which you know it's all one, but you're seeing it from different points of view. There, there are lots of different kinds of dualism uh, all over the place at the moment. Probably always have been. True. I also think what he did functionally was whether that was what was the intention at the beginning of the scientific revolution by getting so firmly into his Cartesian dualism was he kind of gave the mind to the church and gave the body to the, to, to science. And by doing that, technically, everybody was happy. So the, the church had the mind and could do what they want to do with it, while science was happy because it was, in, it, it was more interested in what we have here and with, with uh, let's say, uh, proof of what exactly is happening with the human body. There was empirical evidence now. Yes, yes, I think that's a good a good point. I think I think that's right. Um, and there we have the problem of religions again, don't we? Um, the religions that love to think that they are all about the mind, um, that they have a power over kindness, altruism, goodness, and all those kinds of aspects, sort of nice things about humans. Um, and of course, the modern science is showing how evolution produces creatures like us who, on the whole, manage to get on well together, help each other and so on, um, because that's the way that uh, genetically we, we've managed to survive um, as these weird creatures that we are. Yeah. True. And uh, just to get to the point before this, where we were talking about consciousness and I think we spoke about Besides humans, if we had to, and I just want to bring up what Thomas Nagel had said about what it is to be a bat. And when we said that we had, or you very interestingly brought up attention. Now, I just want to understand from your point of view, because I'm thinking something else, but I want to know what you think about it is, as we go down to animals or we go down to primates and then we can go down to various other forms of, uh, of animal and living beings, does this attention equally play an important part with consciousness or do you see that there is any scientific evidence or proof to tell us that as we move through species uh, attention as well as consciousness is interlinked and, and has an impact oh that's a very very tricky question first let me go back when you said what it is to be a bat it was not it was it was what is it like to be a bat so this is Nagel's 1974 paper, if, if listeners don't know this. Um, Thomas Nagel, the philosopher, wrote this paper thinking that he demolished materialism forever. 
which he hadn't done at all. And most of the paper is, is forgotten. But what people remember is this phrase, what is it like to be a bat? And the point about that he was making there, which has survived since the 1970s and is really the basis of what neuroscientists and philosophers at the moment consider consciousness to be, is if there is something it's like for the bat, that's what we mean by being conscious. And if there's nothing it's like for the bat, there's nothing it's like to be alive, to fly around, there's nothing it's like for the bat, it's all dark inside. That's what we mean by not being conscious. So it's not a question about, uh, you know, how does a bat's brain work or anything? It, it is, well, what is it like for the bat? Now, coming to your question about attention and consciousness in other species, this is really, really tricky. So, of course, every every species of a certain complexity needs attentional control. So I would guess a bacterium doesn't need uh, much in the way of attention. Um, everything is going on automatically and rather separately. But as soon as you get um, information flows in different directions requiring energy, and this may even be true in, in trees and, and, and other plants, um, then you, the, the whole system has to decide how much attention how much, how many resources of energy, oxygen, water, whatever it, resources it may be, how, mu how much resources to give to this or that operation that's going on. So if you get a fish, for example, now I have a pond full of fish and we live by a river, there are fish there. Now these fish uh, have quite complex um, nervous system and they will definitely have attentional processes going on there. When there's food, then their uh, eyes and their uh, sense of um, smell and taste in the water will all be, uh, oh, oh, there's some food, I must have paid attention. They'll stop paying attention to whatever they were doing before. Um, and those attentional systems um, can be studied quite easily. Does that mean they are conscious in the sense of, yes, there is something it's like to be the fish? Now. Uh, scientists and philosophers have had a really good go, and I don't think there's an answer yet. So the ways, for example, one way of answering the question is a physiological way. So you look, for example, at the fish nervous system. Does it have the kind of pain neurons that we have? Does it have you know, the C fibers that we have that, that conduct pain? Um, so... I won't go into it, but the, we know very well what, which kind of fibers take which kind of pains into what part of the brain in a, in a human, and we know in some other species too. So you can ask, does a monkey, does a, uh, a great ape, does a fish, does a frog have the right kind of a nervous system to be able to feel pain? Well, the answer is people come up with different answers. And it, there are some species that closest to us, um, other apes, uh, who have very similar systems to us so you might say okay then that makes uh, sure they are conscious like we are but hang on a minute they don't have a sense of self or at least we can't find out much of a sense of self in them and so if self is required for being i'm conscious then maybe they don't uh, you go off in all those directions so one direction is, is look at the at the anatomy and the physiology of how the animal works another view is to look at things like um, painkillers now some fascinating um experiments with fish where uh, fish have been put into a tank which has two sides in it um, and they can swim through a, a little gap you know uh, and they're given mild electric shocks which they don't like it doesn't really harm them but they don't like it obviously now if one half of this tank has paracetamol or aspirin or some kind of thing that kills pain in us in it and the other half's just water 
they will go when they have an electric shock and not otherwise, they will go to the painkiller side of the tank. Now, isn't that fascinating? We, we don't know how that works exactly, but then, then you'd suggest, well, they can feel pain, so they must be conscious. Um, go on. Um, there, there are all sorts of ways of trying to get at this question, but no one has come up with a definite answer. It's a good question, though. Yeah, no, it's very, very interesting, uh, especially the fact that the fish actually move towards that part of the tank, and that brings in. We spoke. You, you, you just, you just covered pain, but now as mammals or humans, pain is connected with suffering. And when did suffering come in? Because uh, who feels pain, and when does suffering start? Or do we as ah. mammals uh, have the ability to suffer? Because maybe everybody feels pain, but with, because I want to just come into next to. We're getting into the qualia area now, but before we get there, where did where did where did suffering come in, and how did that happen? I think that is a really deep and difficult question, and I don't think there's a, a, a one answer to it. But an approach to an answer comes back to the sense of self. So, and it comes back to the the the, the Buddhist story of the the man who ha is shot by an arrow. And instead of just dealing with the arrow, he goes, oh, my God, well, who sent the arrow? And what, where's it come from? And has it got poison on it? And what, you know, blah, oh, and when it's going to harm me? Blah. Um, the idea being that we humans, because of our powerful sense of self and our protect, protection towards ourself and because of our capacity to think about the future and about the past in ways that we think that other species can't do, or at least not in the way that we do, we add suffering to pain. So pain is a horrible sensation that we try to avoid. Any animal capable of feeling pain will take steps to reduce pain, whether that's swimming away very fast, whether it's um, you know attacking whatever the cause of pain is, um, will get away from it. But we also add suffering because we then think, I don't want this pain, and oh God, how long is it going to go on? And oh, is it terminal cancer? And am I going to die? And you know, we, we add those layers of suffering onto what otherwise would simply be pain. Now, it's not an entirely satisfactory answer, but certainly with meditation, people learn to have a different response to pain, which simply accepts the pain as painful, unpleasant, I don't like it, end of story and find that they can, to some extent, let go of a lot of the additional suffering. It doesn't let go of the pain. But I still don't think that there's a, a black and white distinction there. And I certainly can't give um, principled answers about other species. I, right. I don't know it. Right. And do you think that the stoic method of dealing with pain, and when I say stoic method, I don't only mean pain, but I, de I mean dealing with emotions as well, and maintaining some kind of balance because they have their own philosophy that talks about how best to keep yourself towards the center and not get carried away in either direction because then you let emotions take over and when the moment we let our emotions take over it makes us do things that uh, are not probably rational most of the time well i don't really know enough about stoicism to to give you a very good answer but in response to the way you've described it there I would say that um, emotions, when they get out of control, of course, can be very harmful. Um, I have a terrible situation at the moment with my 14-year-old nephew, who is 
completely gone off the rails. He's clearly suffering all kinds of mental torment, but he's really, really incapable of controlling his violence and outbursts and terrible swearing and calling people terrible things. Now, when that happens, this is clearly not a good idea, but nor is it a good idea to suppress emotions. I mean, it, it makes you not fully human if your reaction to your own emotions is, oh, I mustn't feel that, mm, stop it, stop it. You will not, not grow as a person. You will not be able to empathize with other people and help them. Um, you'll become rather restricted kind of a person. So I guess maybe that's what you meant by the kind of balancing, a balancing of acceptance of what it is to be an animal that has emotions with a realization that sometimes you need to stop, think clearly and decide whether where the emotions are taking you is actually where you want to go. But when then I say that, I'm bringing up the whole thing of self again. Tricky, you're asking very difficult questions and I can't answer that one very well, sorry. <laughs> no, I think I think we got to, I mean, we got to that point where I think that question, again, like you just said, I'm, I, that, I didn't think of the question. I mean, the question just came up. So, but having said that again, we, would, we, we also wanted to ask you about when you talk about the brain now and, and you kind of being the expert for us here on this particular discussion, where does, we do know that there are certain areas in the brain or do we know whether there are certain areas in the brain that deal with, for example, smell or color or whether it's love. And we do know that it can be induced at the same time, it can be controlled. And do you think that this is moving in a direction where in time to come, we will have better understanding of this and it may not be so mysterious? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, as far as smell is concerned, um, a lot of um, is, uh, simpler species um, rely a lot more on smell. Well, so do some complex ones like dogs, but the, the smelling systems in our brain are part of the older, evolved much longer ago parts of the brain. Um, but we know quite a lot about it. But really, people, scientists on the whole, haven't done anything like as much work on smell or taste um, or touch as on vision and even hearing gets neglected because we are such a visual species that most of it, um, most of the attention is given to vision. Now, when we talk about, um, you, you, you mentioned color. Well, we know the most phenomenally amazing amount about the color system and it's still kind of mysterious despite all we know. So in, information comes into the eyes, affects the retina. There are three um, color systems, uh, three kinds of receptors there the information is then a lot of the information is thrown away in order to get enough through the optic nerve which goes from the back of the eyes up into the brain into the thalamus which is a kind of um, subcortical structure which has kind of gating operations and sends some information to where you uh, to control eye movements which we don't consciously know about at all and the rest goes into the visual cortex which has many many systems within it and the color information is then turned into, um, instead of three colors, it's an opponent system with two tracks and then one is subtracted and then the other's added and then you get the information that tells you about color. And certain areas in, in V4 and V5 in the, in the visual system are dealing with color. And if you uh, see what is happening in those parts of the brain with scans and so on, then it's possible to know what colors somebody is looking at. Um, 
we, we know it, it's terribly complicated the way color works and everybody's system is slightly different and some people are colorblind not completely but in there are different forms of colorblindness we know so much about it but we're going back here to the very first question i think you asked me it does that help us with the with the problem of consciousness color is particularly interesting here because you know the old old um conundrum that i'm looking at these these leaves of a tree which are beautiful fresh green it's spring and we've had a very late spring here a beautiful fresh green color there's no way i can know whether how i experience green is anything like you experience green now that's a kind of weird mystery we've clearly got something wrong in our understanding of consciousness if we can't understand that what we can do is to do lots of tests on, on you and me, for example, and we'll find that the way I'm detecting the greens is a bit different from yours. Uh, you know, your, your, um, uh, where you draw the boundaries between um, uh, yellow and green is a bit different, or blue and green particularly, is, is a little different from mine. We can do all of that, but it still doesn't help us to understand the experience. And you mentioned qualia, that dodgy philosophical word. Well, this is where we come to that problem because Color is one of those things that they, the philosophers like to say, oh, well, it's the qualitative experience. And they call this a quale, the experience of, of green. But then there are plenty of philosophers who would say that's a ridiculous way of going about it. There's no such thing. I'm not sure I can be dragged mm -hmm. into that deep philosophical mire. But <laughs> anyway, the, the answer to your question is, yeah, we know an awful lot and we know more and more and more. And my opinion is that the more we know, the more obvious and difficult the problem of consciousness becomes. And we are not near to solving it, even though quite a lot of people think that they have solved it. Right. And talking about color, you have, like you say, whether it's green or it's different shades of green and people, you were talking earlier about certain habits and behaviors that people from all over the world can pick up. Now, another interesting concept that I've also been thinking about is, for example, is near-death experiences. And when you look at these altered states of consciousness, there seems to be a, about three or four very common threads. And does that mean that this is connected to what we spoke about earlier, which means that it's passed on through culture, it's passed on to stories or memories or subconsciously? Because when people do report near-death experiences, they tend to report the same beginnings, let's say, or the same concepts. There's nothing new there. The experiences seem to follow a particular pattern. Yes, they do. And I get really, I get so fed up with people who say, oh, because near-death experiences are the same all over the world, this proves they're true. What do you mean they're true? And this proves that, that you know, the soul leaves the body and you will survive after death. No, it doesn't. The fact that people have the same experiences or very similar all over the world shows that we have the same kind of brains. To answer your question about cultural versus um, um, genetic or or whatever else you were contrasting it with, is both. So, for example, um, the a typical near-death experience, although they vary quite a lot uh, in the order of events, although there is a, a general tendency towards the same order, and that would be, first of all, uh, a dark tunnel. When you seem to be moving through something, you seem to be moving forward through darkness towards a light, coming out into the light, and out of the, then an out of the body experience in which you seem to be looking down on whatever's happening the car crash where you nearly died or the you know the cliff you jumped off or the um 
overdose you've taken, whatever it may be that's brought you near near to death. So you see your own body down there. Then if the, if the experience carries on for longer, then there may be, but it's quite rare, a life review where it seems as though your whole life is, is present all at once. There may be wonderful emotional state. I mean, just blissful, even in that state of looking at your body ill or dying or, or um, injured, um, of it's all fine. Actually, everything's fine and it's all great. And, um, you know, you don't fight anything, that, that sort of emotional state, sometimes with a kind of golden light around the place. Uh, then if you're still going, and most near-death experiences are quite short and they don't carry on beyond this point, but then will come to be other worlds where um, you seem to meet other people, other animals, other spirits, angels, um, all kinds of mythical creatures. Um, Christians tend to see the, um, uh, Saint, whatever his name is at the gate. <laughs> I, I brought up a Christian, I ought to know. So there are biological explanations for all those early phases. Oh, and then there may be the decision to return. I've experienced all of this myself, except for the life review. And then the decision to return, where you kind of get the, you absolutely sure if I carry on through whatever it is. It might be a river, it might be a wall, it might be just a space. It, it, it comes in different ways. But I know if I go any further, that's it. I'll never come back. Do I want to go back? And people will describe, well, I came back because of my children, or I came back, well, no, whatever. Now, I mustn't go on too long about this, but if we start at the beginning, we know precisely why you get lights, tunnels, out-of-body experiences. Although you can read endless books about how this proves a mind beyond the body and all that, people don't seem to be so interested in the neuroscience. I mean, I've written a book called Seeing Myself, um, what out-of-body and near-death experiences tell us about mind and life and whatever. Um, and, you know, it's not bought by anything like the number of people who buy. I went to heaven and saw God. Um, I met Jesus, um, you know, all those kind of books. Um, so we know that um, what happens generally in their death experiences is um, disinhibition in the brain. So the brain is constantly keeping a balance between excitatory neurons and inhibitory neurons. And that keeps the balance so it doesn't go completely off key. Now, when you don't have enough oxygen or when you have terrible shock and various things can happen that affect the, the inhibitory cells more quickly. So they stop inhibiting and you get a flood of, of activity in various areas. Now, you get a flood of activity in the visual cortex. You'll get bright white light. You get movement detection, things that, that you will seem to go forward um, as the light gets as the light gets bigger, as you as the, the um, energy um, in the visual system increases, the light seems to get bigger and bigger. And so you feel as if you're going towards the light. The outer body experience happens when the body schema, which I've already mentioned, when the body schema um, is, is uh, disrupted. So the body schema is constructed in the temporoparietal junction. It's a critical part of the brain where systems come together into the self system. And when that's disrupted, um, you can no longer, the brain is no longer connecting up the sense of where my arms and legs are, the body schema, with the incoming information through the eyes, through the sense of touch and so on, if things are disrupted enough. And then by trying to get back into control, um, 
you've still got the body schema, but it's going to be elsewhere. It's not in the body. It's it's a kind of floating, and you get an out of the body experience. And I've done lots of research on out of body experiences. It's not mysterious. It's very interesting, and it's very great fun if you can induce these experiences. Um, but it's not um, it's not mysterious. And then you go into onto other worlds, and that depends very much on your culture. So and your particularly on your religion. And people will tell stories that are just so obviously the American, you know, um, what's it called? Um, um, uh, Near death tourism, um, heavenly to heaven tourism genre of books. Um, and, you know, they all go and see, oh, St. Peter at the gates um, and, uh, you know, different kind of gates to heaven and, um, and angels with wings and all this kind of stuff. Um, this is purely cultural. So that's why the answer, it's a rather a long answer, but um, because it's one of the things I know a lot about, I quite like to explain that, that the early stages are the same all over the world because we all have similar brains and the later stages of the experience are different because we all live in different cultures. Well, that's brilliant and thank you for explaining it to us in that detail. And I also do understand that you've had these experiences, so it, it adds so much more when you are explaining it, but. To me, what I find even more amazing is the fact that you had this experience and I don't know how many people would have any of these kind of experiences and go then go to the other end of it. So I think that's the most amazing part of your story when I was following you or reading your books and I was like, wow, this is a 360 degree turn because people would tend to go into the direction that probably uh, they have gone or believe the experiences they have. But I think as an individual as a scientist, I think you're, you're so unique because even though you've done that, you've come back and stuck with the facts. So I think that's really amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you for those kind comments. But it is what it means to be a scientist. Um, and I think I've always been like that. As a kid, I was always asking difficult questions and, you know, annoying people, you know, what is heat? I remember asking as really quite a young kid and trying to understand heat and light and other things like that. Um, and um, the the key well not the key but one key to being a scientist is to be willing to change your mind in the face of the evidence and that's how you learn more and that's happening a lot in neuroscience at the moment there's some examples i i could talk about of where people assume something and then the evidence shows they're completely wrong and a good scientist will always go oh right i'll throw out my old theory and i'll try and make a, a new theory that fits with this new evidence now, I had to do that as a, you know, in my 20s, um, because I couldn't find evidence for uh, something leaving the body in out of body experiences. I couldn't find evidence for people actually, even though they claim to have seen something at a distance in their out of body experience, when you actually look into it, they hadn't. Um, and so, um, and that combined with all my work on telepathy and clairvoyance and ghosts and poltergeists and everything else that I did, um, I had to change my mind. So having changed my mind in such a big way, I'm not frightened anymore. I mean, it's, it's horrible. It was quite scary at the time because I was, you know, imagine me as a, in my early 20s. I was the one at Oxford who was in my, in my uh, year in my college. Um, you know, I'd be wearing all the hippie clothes and I did tarot readings for people and looked into my crystal ball and talked about all this, you know, far out new age stuff. And I, you know, came to the decision that this w was wrong. So it was, I had to change my whole self, if you like, as well as not, it wasn't just a separate thing, my science, it was my whole life changed. So although it was painful at the time, um, it's been a great help 
because I've had many theories of consciousness, many ideas about it, and had to change them as well. And I, you know, I'm just fine. That's the way you should go. Try and find if you have a theory about something, whether it's life after death or whether it's some, you know, tight little question about a part of the brain or anything else. Um, you know, have, have a theory. Try and make predictions and then test them. And if they're they're wrong, then you change your theory, and that's how you learn. So I'm grateful to what was at the time a pretty painful experience. True, very interesting. And just a question on, we spoke about the near-death experiences and, and my thought has always been as, I am not a scientist, but if I was a scientist and, and, and I had to ask a question about near-death experience, the fact that we call it near-death experience means it's not an experience where you have faced death and come back. So a near-death experience will always be a near-death experience, but using a near-death experience, we then talk about what happens after that. But am I right or wrong on this? I don't think anybody has come back and we have evidence for that. So that's a big leap already if you're talking Absolutely. about evidence. Absolutely. You're exactly right. I, I was invited to, I get asked to do all sorts of things and I was invited to uh, join some panel to discuss post-death experiences. And I wrote back to the woman and I said, look, we know there's no such thing as a post-death experience. Near-death experiences, as you just explained, are when you come very, 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 very close to death. And usually in a near-death experience, you know that. So you have faced death in the sense that you can kind of see it coming, but you have not actually been dead and brought back. I would say from all the evidence we have on near-death experiences, it's impossible to say there's no life after death. We can't prove that. But by understanding in detail how these experiences come about and why, we can at least say near-death experiences are not evidence for life after death. They do not tell us anything about what would happen a moment later. And, and we know, for example, some been fascinating experiments on rats. I mean, horrible because they um, kill the rats. Um, but um, the experiments showed that as the rats are coming close to death, through lack of oxygen, the brain hasn't got enough oxygen. What happens is you get a lot of activity going on, as I described with the disinhibition, and it gradually, gradually um, uh, gets less and less. And then, whoomp, there's a great burst of activity um, uh, many seconds um, after it's appeared. It can actually stop, all brain activity can appear to stop. There'll always be some that you haven't measured probably, but will appear to stop. And then some seconds later, you get a burst of activity, which I think is, is again, due to this disinhibition, the inhibitory systems failing. And that has, obviously, you're not going to do that experiment with humans and, and kill them to find out. But there have been just a very few examples where people have um, died while they were in a brain scanner, and the same thing is seen. And so this is another bit of evidence that, it's during that time that uh, that some of these experiences are happening. Um, because when people say, oh, people had these experiences when there was no activity in their brain at all, that has not been proven. And we know that the activity can die down and then burst up again for a few seconds before it finally stops. So all of these things help us towards thinking um, well, what you said. Uh, it, it's rightly called a near-death experience and not a post-death or after-death experience. True. And in all your research and time that you spent with 
trying to understand consciousness where do you see this going where do you think that a lot of people say there will never be an answer there cannot be an answer and there can be an answer there are those three options but if i had to equate it with probably 1995 where we all thought that there were just nine planets before we discovered the first exoplanet around jupiter and then all of a sudden we realized that there are plan i mean there are millions and billions of of galaxies and planets all over the place and today it's accepted so as far as consciousness is concerned in this search for an answer do you see this research and study moving forward where it is going to be a gradual understanding or do you think that there's going to be this one aha moment where somebody just gets it and life changes after that <laughs> that's a great question um you know i sometimes think of an evening um and i'm contemplating all these things you know i have all these different ideas different kinds of panpsychism different kinds of you know philosophical ideas um often in an altered state of consciousness um uh and and i you know i, I kind of have this fantasy that i might suddenly have the aha and i'll i'll solve it but it hasn't happened yet um i think it will probably be gradual many and if it, if it does happen if it does happen make sure that you call us and we will get the first uh, interview <laughs> yes. with all right all right i promise i promise i'll let you know if it happens but you see i might be the only one who thinks it's really solved the problem but i could ask you and see if you if you think it has um but going back to the slow method there are quite a few people particularly pat churchland uh, has often said this but i have another people too um it's like uh, um when people were looking for the elan vital the essence of life the life spirit the life force because people thought let's say 150 200 years ago that it was obvious or even actually more recently early 20th century um that it's obvious that there's some difference between living things and dead things um and there has to be some you know life force or something that keeps things alive well then we come to the 1950s and the structure of dna and the whole way biology has gone since then of course we know now that there's no life force no elan vital it there's no need for such a thing we understand enough of the processes of life to know that life is a process and when the processes stop into being integrated the thing falls dies and then rots and you know so it isn't a mystery so there is a thought that um the same will happen with consciousness there won't be an aha moment when you go oh we don't need that concept anymore but gradually gradually the way we begin to understand the brain we won't think about consciousness in the same way and um people will cultures and education and so on um people will just come to think about consciousness as a brain process and that's the churchland's view that you know just as we now you know we just brought up with with evolution and so on um so people will be brought up with the idea well this green just is the firing of neurons in in this part of the brain i don't think that really works entirely but uh, will it be, will it be a sudden burst or will it be gradual i don't know um i would like to talk about something you you mentioned altered states of consciousness and and concentrated on um near death experiences but i would like to say something about the amazing work going on psychedelics because this really is making a difference you may have heard about uh, psychedelics now being licensed for research and for therapeutic use and there's wonderful um evidence well it's a terrible story because most psychedelics were um discovered or made um early in the in the, in the last century 
And there was research done then in the 1950s and 60s on LSD, psilocybin, um, mescaline, um, and was getting fantastic results on the effects on people, um, helping people with problems, um, uh, particularly with depression and anxiety and other things like that. And then came uh, the Americans' war on drugs. And not only could people not use the drugs if they wanted to, but they couldn't do the research. So it was completely dead until a very few years ago. And now research on psychedelics is really taking off. And the most interesting thing, this comes back to what you were saying about having to change your mind, about science having to change your mind. So people, a lot of people assumed that because if you take LSD or psilocybin from magic mushrooms um, or mescaline, there's a massive you know, rush of stuff, you know, so many colors and hallucinations of things and so much movement and so many exciting things and thoughts are coming and going and it's all, oh, wow. So they assumed that there must be more brain activity going in the visual system and other sensory systems and so on. So when the research was able to be done and people put in a scanner while they're um, taking LSD or psilocybin or whatever, it was discovered that no, it's calmed down. A lot of the activity has calmed down. And it turns out that what's happening, or it seems to be at the moment, that the, the gating operations, the, the parts of the brain that actually um, restrict and hold back um, what's happening in the sensory systems, those calm down, stop doing their gating, and let a whole lot of other stuff happen that wouldn't otherwise happen and is much less organized than when you have these systems operating properly. And there have been other discoveries um, uh, about, about um, to do with predictive processing, which is a, a theory of how the brain works, that all the time different levels of the brain are predicting what input they should be getting and updating that input and so on. And this is being related to psychedelics as well. And um, well, I won't go on. There's a lot of complicated and amazing, uh, amazing science on psychedelics. Now, if you have experience of psychedelics and e even with cannabis, which is a, sometimes called a minor psychedelic, then um, you will see the connection with consciousness because our self seems to change. In an LSD trip, for example, you don't feel to be the same person. You don't feel that you are um, solid in the same way as normal, the self begins to um, disintegrate. Um, and one of the most recent findings on the psychedelic area is that the self system, I talked about the default mode network as part of the self system, um, that begins to, um, it, it's normally a very organized network in the brain, spreading out through various areas and it becomes disorganized. And so no wonder the self starts to fall apart. So this is bringing together a whole lot of the things that I've been talking about. We have a false idea of self that we cling to that can make our life a misery and make us suffer. Um, and uh, now through doing this kind of research, we can see what happens when that system starts to fall apart. And some people would say, well, then you see the world more clearly as it is, which is often the feeling that people have. Um, but a lot of people then come back from such an experience and say, ah, oh, now I know that my, you know, my mind can leave my body or whatever. So it can, it can go both ways. But I'm just giving this as an example of how it seems to be helping with the big questions of the nature of self and consciousness. 
So maybe with a continuation of that, the slow route will, will bear fruit and the problem will slowly um, change and disappear. But well, I, I hope I stay alive long enough to find out. <laughs> oh yeah, I hope, I hope we all do. And you just mentioned about uh, psychedelics and yes, the, the research has been amazing, but it seems to always come in twos because if this is the fact and we do know that a particular drug or a particular chemical has an effect on the brain that changes your thinking or changes your mindset, then this should have solved the debate once and for all. That's what you would think. But what happens now is on the other end of it, you have another popular subculture coming up around ayahuasca, for example, where that becomes a whole new story because the whole ayahuasca experience, for example, is not even connected to everything we're doing in the real world. And you have these theories where the, the ayahuasca experience, experience gets connected back to the cave drawings in France and back to, I, I spoke about the suffering question earlier, and it just gets more and more complicated. One At one end, we are scientifically finding results and there's black and white on the board there to tell us what it is, but it's not deteriorating on the other side as well. It seems to be equally, equally flaring up. Well, you, you mentioned there ayahuasca and the main active ingredient in ayahuasca is DMT. And that experiment I was talking about um, with the brain networks disintegrating and what this, this experiment was done with DMT injected. Now, okay. DMT injected is, it only lasts a very short time, but it is the same, the same active ingredient as in ayahuasca. And what happened was the, the major network started to fall apart and the rest of the brain became more active. Um, which makes some sense of what the experience is like. I personally have had ayahuasca eight times now. It is a no. Well, I've had DMT. I've had ayahuasca um, eight times. I've also had DMT smoked, and I've had a DMT inhaled as a vapor. Um, I've never had it injected, um, and the experience is utterly extraordinary and somewhat similar but in many ways totally different from other psychedelics and I can see why whole world views are developed after ayahuasca experiences and it's quite bizarre and and fascinating and see, it seems to kind of go back to uh, animals and plants and nature and uh, and you can turn into different animals or feel as though you are turning into different animals now, there is some evidence from these DMT studies, not that many have been done, but that it is the, um, the, the, the newer, evolutionarily newer parts of the brain, the, the parts of the cortex that are particularly uh, in human beings and not in other species, um, that, um, that fall apart with DMT. And it is the older evolutionary parts of the brain that keep going. We talked about smell earlier. Um, but in touch and um, possibly related to body schemas of other animals. Um, I don't know. There's so much to find out here. But that little clue that it is the older parts of the brain that are functioning more and the newer bits to do with the self and those big networks in, in a human cortex that stop functioning properly in DMT, that's, that's giving a, us a very interesting clue, I think. Cool. And it's interesting, I just got to know as you mentioned that you had a uh, about eight experiences with ayahuasca and other would you be comfortable in in sharing some uh, experience that you've had that has totally overwhelmed you or you're still trying to decode or has stayed with you more than any of the others if you're comfortable oh gosh 
um, I've certainly been overwhelmed um, with with ayahuasca. I think um, I, I've had LSD quite a few times, but I typically will have it every you know once every few years, and it's a long time since I had overwhelming experiences with it. Um, but ayahuasca, I can tell you a horrible one from ayahuasca, when I began to become a snake and I felt that I was a snake and it was the most awful, horrible, horrible feeling that I'd become a snake and I was kind of wriggling and it was as though my arms were trapped by my side and my legs were trapped together and, and I couldn't, you know, I was sort of slithering. It was really, really horrible. I was lucky enough all the times I've had ayahuasca to be in a group with a very, very experienced guide and he said, anyone in trouble, just, you know, call me. <laughs> and he came and just sorted me out because <laughs> I couldn't. It was really horrible. Yeah. But I've had experiences much more interesting than that. Well, that's kind of interesting, I suppose. But, I mean, other people in the same same group have turned into butterflies or really nice things, you know, or gone exploring yeah. other worlds that they keep keep going to. Um, but I've had the most beautiful, wonderful experiences of, of, of clarity and light and um, bliss and you know, truly, truly wonderful sensations and, and of loss of self and simply being present with amazing things. But it's so hard to describe. You know, people say these things, that, um, mystical experiences, which some psychedelic experiences, I think, can be called mystical experiences, are often said to be ineffable. In other words, you can't describe them. And that's a problem because if I start trying to describe the experiences, then they... Um, they that's not doing them justice and you, and your memory is so bad for them but i can say that in some of the more formative experiences i've had with lsd for example it takes some time a couple of days of sort of letting it soak in and if you if you take these drugs seriously and you know not just larking about not you know which is really stupid with powerful drugs like this you know at a party or something don't do that you know um but if if you do it carefully, you need to prepare for it by, you know, what do I want with this experience? Where am I going to be? Am I going to be on my own with other people and so on? And you need to give yourself time afterwards to integrate what's happened in the experience. So I have had experiences in the past um, which really did change my life. Um, uh, my first husband, who's long dead now, um, we committed ourselves to each other on an acid trip in 1977. Oh, lovely. <laughs> Wow. And, you know, I can still remember the log that we were sitting on in the forest and, and the words we said to each other. And this came about through a very intense and powerful uh, eight, ten hour experience and changed our lives. So, you know, all sorts of things can happen. But listeners, you know, those of you who know about psychedelics, fine. Those who don't, don't mess with them. If you're going to take them, do it properly. Get the proper stuff. Get a guide if you've not done it before. Don't mess with something so powerful. That's really amazing, Sue, that story itself. And when you talk about these memories that you had, you spoke about 77. I just want to refer back to a particular article you wrote in Guardian in 2018, I said. And I think you said the article was on brain, uh, brain preservation. And it's, it is a step closer, but would you ever want to do it? And I would want to ask you that question again. It's 2023 now. Do you, uh, do you still think that if there was an opportunity for you or for uh, to preserve your brain, would you want to do that and then wake up 50 years later down the line and see whether we found an answer to consciousness? <laughs> oh, that's a horrible question. Uh, no, I, I'm not tempted to want my brain preserved. Um, but that conflicts with another answer, which is, oh, I'd love to know what happens in 50 years. 
when I think about death, and now in my 70s, I think about it probably more than I used to. I mean, as possibly my death. Um, the, re the main reason I don't want to die is not because I want to carry on in heaven or anything of that kind. It's because I want to know what's going to happen. I want to know what's going to happen to our whole planet, um, through climate change and everything like that. And I want to know what's going to happen to the science of consciousness. Well, I don't, I would not uh, decide to have my brain frozen um, for many, many reasons. One is a social reason. I don't think that wealthy white people should be the ones who get their brains frozen and everybody else doesn't. Um, and, and they're brought back and, you know, it's not a good idea. Um, but also, I don't think it can possibly work. The more we learn about, well, consciousness, but about brain function, is how much it's integrated with the body. Um, and in the meditation traditions, so very often uh, you do body scans and concentrate on the body and be, pay attention to the body. Um, in consciousness studies, there are uh, what's called 4E, um, embodied, uh, inactive theories, which really relate what's going on in the mind to the body. Um, we are interacting with the world, with a body. Now, these brain preservations, they only preserve the brain, they don't preserve the body. So you put the brain into a different kind of body, um, maybe maybe a, a living person later and you put your brain instead of theirs, Ooh, that would be terrible, wouldn't it? Or do you have a robot body, in which case it couldn't be the same. So you wouldn't really be me, even if it was your brain. And the chances of the, you know, the brain staying not deteriorating for 50 years in ice, well, uh, I don't know. I wouldn't personally go for it, no. But you can ask me again if I'm still alive in 10 years. You ask me again. So I think my answer would still be no. You anyway are going to live on. So I don't think you need to worry about preserving the brain or coming <laughs> back in 50 years because I think you've, you've, you're already living on. Definitely people are going to be reading about you. And I'm sure after this particular podcast, I'll also link on to the other books that you've written. But once again, you, it's an absolute pleasure that we were able to talk to you and I just hope we can do this again. I, I would love to. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you. This Hub Hopper original ko sunne ke liye aapka shukriya. Agar aap bhi apna podcast launch karna chahte hain, to Hub Hopper studio website pe register kare aur ek minute ke andar andar apna khud ka podcast launch kare. Yehi nahi, studio deta hai aapko puri azadi kahi bhi, kabhi bhi apna podcast launch karne ki sirf teen aasan steps mein. To saath mein apna podcast shuru karne ke liye tayyar, just hop on. Hub Hopper, simply content.